you can turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of James, please. We're continuing our series from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And once you have found that, I'd invite you, if you are able, to please stand for the reading of God's word. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life and your works that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. Verse 16, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Wanting Wisdom. Wanting Wisdom. Do you want to be wise? I'm not asking if you think that whether or not wisdom is good or valuable I'm not asking if you admire people who seem wise to you. The question I'm asking is whether we want to be wise. Now, it's probably not a fair question to answer before we first define our terms. What exactly does it mean to be wise? Well, according to James in these verses, the answer is it depends. The author of this letter to the early church identifies two different kinds of wisdom. One which comes from God and one which doesn't come from God. In this passage, James identified, James distinguished between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he distinguished between worldly and godly wisdom by comparing their different impacts. We can begin defining wisdom once we see what these different kinds of wisdom do. Over the years, like many of you, I'm sure, I've talked with people who want something in their life to change. They might be praying for a new job, or they're looking to be healed from grief, or they're, they're searching for help with an addiction. Very rarely, though, do I hear somebody who is searching for wisdom. Of course, the exception here is if a person is facing a major life transition, a big decision, something that feels complicated and overwhelming, then we want wisdom. But in general, it seems that wisdom does not make the top ten list of things you and I 
want. And again, maybe we need it when life gets complicated, but applied to our whole lives on a regular basis, not so much. I wonder if part of our disinterest in wisdom is that we have reduced it to something kind of bland. If you and I were to define wisdom, we'd probably mostly focus on our minds, on thinking wise thoughts, and, 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 and that's part of it. Our minds and thinking is included in wisdom, but, but that would not be even close to enough for James. You see, for him, wisdom could only be understood by its impact, by how it transforms us and through us, how wisdom changes the world. And how is it that wisdom can have such a big impact? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. Here's how I will put it. Wisdom changes our actions. By transforming our hearts. Wisdom changes our actions. How we live. By transforming our hearts. Okay, here's my not very secret agenda for this sermon. I want us to want wisdom. I hope we'll come to want wisdom to change how we live by transforming our hearts. That we will desire to seek after wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 13 says, Happy are those who find wisdom. And I pray that we will believe that. To hopefully get us to that desire for godly wisdom. We're going to just simply follow James's lead. First, he's going to show us what worldly wisdom is and then what it does. And then he's going to do the same thing for godly wisdom. What godly wisdom is and what godly wisdom does. Fingers crossed, by the time we reach verse 18, I hope we will all want more of God's wisdom for our lives. Amen? Amen. Worldly wisdom. Let's start with that. What is worldly wisdom according to James? He gives us three characteristics. The first is that worldly wisdom is earthly. It's earthbound. I would say it this way. Worldly wisdom is confined to the common sense of the material world. Worldly wisdom has no, no space, no capacity for anything outside of the material world. So, so James, in, in chapter 2, uh, talks about favoritism and how there ought not be any favoritism in the church. And if you missed Dennis Bourne's sermon, I would encourage you to go and listen to that from a few weeks ago. But, but favoritism makes sense in the context of worldly wisdom. That's just how things work in a dog-eat-dog world. This is how we get ahead. This is how one group gets ahead at the expense of somebody else. Worldly wisdom is earthly. Uh, secondly, worldly wisdom, according to James, is unspiritual. And by this, he seems to mean it's empty. It's devoid of the Spirit of God. 
It's predictable. It's uncreative. It's unspiritual. There's, there's no room for the surprising, for, for the surprising move of God, for the, the powerful presence of God in our midst. And then third, James says, worldly wisdom is devilish. The word here is demonic, which maybe seems a little harsh, <laughs> a little drastic, a little dramatic. But think about it this way. What is the result of worldly wisdom? If wisdom does not lead to more flourishing for everybody, if wisdom does not lead to more freedom holistically for everybody, then it's demonic. If wisdom leads in any way to oppression or to captivity or to bondage, then there is behind it a spiritual force of evil. According to one biblical scholar, worldly wisdom can then be summed up this way. It's characterized by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. That's what worldly wisdom is. What does it do? What does worldly wisdom accomplish? What's its impact in our lives and in the world? James lists four things. First, worldly wisdom causes bitter envy. Now, now, uh, perhaps a a more nuanced translation would be that it, 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 it creates... It causes factions, factionalism. It it divides. It separates and segregates into different groups. It does not bring together. It cannot accomplish reconciliation or justice of any kind. It divides and it conquers. Secondly, worldly wisdom brings about selfish ambition. Worldly wisdom causes us to pursue self-centered power. It sees power as something to be used to control or to manipulate or to win. Third, worldly wisdom brings about disorder. This is the opposite of unity. This is the opposite of true reconciliation. In fact, worldly wisdom makes true reconciliation impossible. I I think about worldly wisdom when I hear people reminiscing about the good old days in the United States of America. When we were all together. When we had so much in common as opposed to now. Worldly wisdom will always gloss over somebody else's experience for that nostalgic, uh, softly filtered gaze of the past. And then finally, James says, rather bluntly, that worldly wisdom brings about wickedness of every kind. I don't think we need to linger there. It it, it points us away from the, the flourishing way that God intends for us. Now. I would imagine that for most of us, we can picture worldly wisdom pretty easily this morning. There's enough examples in our world. We can see how worldly wisdom infiltrates our politics, yes? How it infiltrates our our corporations and our civic life. And we could go on, but what about us? (laughs) It's it's comfortable for me to sort of say, well, out there... (laughs) Or the systems and the structures. And yes and amen, but what about right here? What about in my family, on our block, in our school? What about in my life? What about those places where I actually have influence? How has worldly 
worldly wisdom impacted us? Where do we see evidence of factions in our own lives? Where have we just assumed that the segregated status quo is always going to be the way that it is? Where do we see selfish ambition? Where are we using power for our own agendas? Where is there disorder in our lives that we have assumed to be neutral and normal? Where is there wickedness? My first question was, do you want to be wise? Do we want to be wise? And the thing is, is that left to ourselves, the answer is always yes. We do want to be wise. The question is, what kind of wisdom do we want? Left to ourselves, we will want the sort of wisdom that is common to our world. We will want, we will desire earthly, unspiritual, and devilish wisdom. This is the air that we breathe. And so my question for us is, are there any ways in which worldly wisdom has become normal to you? Has become acceptable to you? Ask yourself, am I content with segregated factions in my life? Do I use power selfishly in any way? Ask yourself, is there, is there any wickedness, anything contrary to God's heart that I have called good? Wisdom changes our actions by transforming our hearts. And according to James, this is not only true of godly wisdom. The factional, selfish, disordering, and wicked wisdom of this world will warp our hearts and change how we live. Which is why we need godly wisdom, amen? And why we need to seek after what James calls the wisdom from above. Now, here he gives us seven characteristics of godly wisdom. So stick with me, I'm going to move quickly. The first is that godly wisdom is pure. Now, James is most likely writing to a group of Jewish Christians, and so he's likely drawing from the the Hebrew scriptures and the the, the imagination from the Old Testament where purity was was mostly uh, uh, oppositional, the opposite of idolatry. Purity was rooted in the holiness of God. It was, it was seen as, as, as worshiping God and God alone. Godly wisdom is pure. It is undivided. Its allegiances are clear. Secondly, it's peaceable. Again, pulling from that Hebrew imagination, it seems likely that James is picturing shalom. Not just the absence of strife, but but the presence of of flourishing and health and abundance for everybody. To be peaceable is the opposite of disorder and chaos. And it's active. Maybe James is remembering his brother Jesus in one of his teachings when Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. It's pure, it's peaceable. Number three, James says, godly wisdom is gentle. 
Now, I want to pause here a minute because I don't know what we think of when we think of gentleness. But I, I think what James is getting at here is that godly wisdom is humane. And, and it's helpful, for me at least, to compare this to the worldly wisdom, which results in factions and divisions and segregations along ideological lines. This week I was reading an article, and a political scientist from American University, David Barker, was quoted. And I just want to read to you what he says about our current moment. He says, the populist anti-intellectual right absolutely agrees, believes that the intellectuals are not only out of touch, but are also ungodly and sneaky and therefore think they must be stopped before they ruin America. Meanwhile, the intellectual left really do believe the Trumpists are racist, sexist, homophobic, and so on, authoritarians who can't spell and are going to destroy the country if they are not stopped. Anybody recognize worldly wisdom at work? James says that that in contrast to that, Godly wisdom is gentle. It's humane. It honors the dignity of everybody. It will never be content with gross stereotypes or generalizations. Godly wisdom will always acknowledge that in every single person there are places of profound vulnerability and pain. We each carry in different ways trauma in our bodies. Godly wisdom and its gentleness will will listen for and be curious about the places of hope and the dreams and the resiliency in other people. If you want to know what this looks like, well, you can hang out with Kayla and Young Life and see how this plays out with young people in our city. Hang out with with Sonia and Pete at New Community Outreach and, and watch how this gentleness gets lived out in an embodied kind of way. Number four, godly wisdom is characterized by being willing to yield. It's a kind of tricky one. It's, it's open to reason. It's, it's humble. It's not ideologically entrenched. It's obedient to the will of God. I would say that this attribute leads godly wisdom to being curious about people. A lot of us are not curious about people. We are content with the assumptions that we make about other people. Uh, so so, so uh, this summer I had an experience where I, I, I traveled to a very rural uh, area of a Midwestern state to, to preach at a, a camp and it did not go well. They were not excited about the message of racial reconciliation that I, this was 300 white people in rural uh, North America. And I could tell you with a lot of precision about what was wrong about them. And I think there were some things. Some places where God needs to do some work. And and if I'm honest, for about a month, my instinct was to respond out of that place of worldly wisdom. 
well, they're all a bunch of, well, they all think, well, they've not been exposed to, or they're biblically ignorant of. Just me, right? I'm the only, I'm the only, I'm the only one. And then over time, the Holy Spirit, you know, unfortunately for me, starts to work. I start to get curious. And I'll confess to you, that's not, that's not in me. That's, that's not my instinct. I start to wonder, well, what have I missed? What do I not know about the experiences shared by that congregation that weekend? What was I ignorant of? Where were my assumptions off base? What have they experienced that I have very little experience of? And that curiosity has led to some good conversations and some new friendships with pastors who are serving in some of those spaces, doing really good work, who are helping me to see more clearly and to love better my sisters and brothers. It's willing to yield. Three more. Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. To say it uh, simply, godly godly wisdom is is other-directed. It's, it's, it's always seeking the good of others. If you're around somebody who has godly wisdom, you're more likely to flourish. Some of you have had uh, bosses like this. Some of you have not. (laughs) But some of you have. You are better because of that person's supervision, that person's presence in, in your life. You, you grow in your competency and your capability. You have somebody who's looking out for you and is wanting you to get better. That's a, a little image of godly wisdom full of mercy. Then James says, number six, that it is without partiality. Godly wisdom honors everybody. Back in chapter two, James was kind of vehemently opposed to the ways that some sisters and brothers in the church were were not being cared for. Their needs were not being met. He was angry because there was partiality within the body. And there's no space for that in godly wisdom. And then finally, there is no hypocrisy in godly wisdom. And perhaps again, James is thinking back to his time with Jesus and the way that Jesus so often got into it with the Pharisees. In Matthew 23 and 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. That's what hypocrisy does. It it redirects people away from the heart of God. But, But godly wisdom lives a life of integrity, which points our neighbors and our friends to the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is what godly wisdom is. What does godly wisdom do? Just one thing. But it's unfortunately kind of (laughs) cryptic. This is what James writes in verse 18 about what godly wisdom does. He says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Let's try to picture what James is getting at here. Those who make peace are the ones who are seeking godly wisdom. We know the ones seeking godly wisdom are peaceable. So those who seek peace here are those who are seeking godly wisdom. Now, the image is an agricultural image. Sowing and, uh, and, and harvesting. It's a, it's a word picture of what godly wisdom accomplishes. And, 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 and James says... 
that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. All right. Where are my kids? Where are my kids? Kids just, I know you might have gotten distracted. That's okay. Just for a second. Just for a second. Listen to what James says. A harvest is sown in peace. Now, uh, anybody know what a harvest is? Bryce, what's a harvest? When you take a lot of things. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 no, you're in the ballpark. Anybody else? Harvest, uh, Winston? With the crops. And they pick the crops. Miss Danielle, are we in the ballpark when you pick the crops? Does that sound, we kind of, Miss Danielle's one of our resident farmers, so we got we to gotta check with her. But yes, a harvest is when uh, uh, you planted seed and the crops grow up, the corn, the soybean, the broccoli, the, 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 the radishes. And, and, then, and then when it's ready to be picked, when it's ready to be taken out of the ground, that's the harvest. Am I, am I okay, Danielle? So, okay, she's going like this. She's kind of like, that's not real confident, so I'm just going to assume that I'm not... Uh, uh, straying into heresy here. So you wave your hands if I'm getting heretical with this in any way, Danielle. James says that we sow a harvest. Now that's wrong. You don't sow a harvest. What do you sow? You sow seed. You plant seed. So, so, so James is not ignorant. James is, is closer to the agricultural life than most of us are. So, so what does James have in mind by planting, by sowing a harvest? I, I think it's just this. For, for, for James, for godly wisdom, the harvest is in the seed. The harvest is already in the seed. Now, I know there's like two or, th- two, two or three of you who are like ready right now. You're like, oh, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. But for the rest of you, for the rest of you, for the rest of you. Some of you, the sermon could be done right now, right? Melody, you're like, okay, I got it, I see it, I'm good. But, but for the rest of you, for the rest of you, for the rest of you. Back to, back to worldly wisdom. Life under worldly wisdom. Divisions. Controlling power, disorder, wickedness. It's a picture of you and me trying to control our lives by our own strength. By our own knowledge. Doing whatever we think we need to do to get what we think we need. And we, and we leave a trail of damage in our wake. And a trail of damage in our own hearts as well. Life under godly wisdom. The harvest is in the seed. You and I do not force the blessed life. You and I do not uh, uh, try to control the, the abundant life. We sow the seed knowing that it is already pure and peaceable. That it is already gentle and humble and merciful. That the seed is already full of honor and truth. And the result, James says, the result of this seed of godly wisdom is a harvest of righteousness. Now, now, now we're, not, we're not as excited as we should be about a harvest of righteousness. Because some of you are like, well, that means being right with God, and I'm already right with God, so I'm good. But your, your vision of righteousness is too small. 
It's too little. Because, yes, righteousness uh, includes being made right with God. Absolutely. But the same word for righteousness can be translated as justice. This is a holistic vision of a life lived with God in which everything is in harmony. That's the fruit of righteousness. That's the harvest of righteousness. It's a vision of shalom for what God intended for his world from the very beginning. Good news to anybody? To anybody? So righteousness is, is, is harmony with God. It's justice. It's shalom. This is what uh, uh, indigenous theologian Randy Woodley writes. He says, shalom is always tested on the margins of a society. And it's revealed by how the poor and the oppressed, the disempowered and the needy are treated. No wonder James gets so angry uh, about, about favoritism. Uh, about the way the poor are being mistreated. Because for James, that's evidence of worldly wisdom. And not the amazing gift of godly wisdom which God has given to the church. You and I do not need to be told of the results of worldly wisdom. We, we, we see it. We experience it in our own lives. James reminds us that we don't have to be content with worldly wisdom. We don't have to be content with the carnage and the wreckage of worldly wisdom in our lives. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, he understood this when he wrote in his biography, his autobiography. Listen to the way he's echoing intentionally James. He wrote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. (laughs) Douglas is reminding us that we don't have to be okay with worldly wisdom. That, That even though our society has been built on this kind of worldly wisdom... Christian people don't have to be okay with it. We don't have to put up with it. We don't have to build our lives around those assumptions. The legacy of this worldly, corrupt, destructive wisdom is all around us. But we can choose pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. We can choose The harvest of righteousness, which is contained in the seed of wisdom from above. This harvest of righteousness will change you for the better. And through us, God will then bring health and harmony to his world. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that the central vision of world history in the Bible is that all creation is one. Every creature in community with every other, living in harmony and security toward the joy and the well-being of every creature. Shalom. A harvest of righteousness. 
So to be very clear, when we say that wisdom changes our actions by transforming our hearts, we are not simply trading one set of behaviors for another set of behaviors. We're not saying that we need to try hard to get our act together. Godly wisdom transforms our hearts so that we cannot help but live differently. So that we cannot help but live against the grain of the worldly wisdom which divides and dehumanizes. So that we cannot help but want the righteousness and shalom that God made us for. Amen? Zach, can you come on up, please? Um, I'm almost done. Then we're going we're gonna to come to the table together. Okay, you remember my not-so-secret agenda? That we want wisdom more. We want godly wisdom more. Okay, I can't say if I did that or not. But I hope at the very least you'll agree that wisdom from above, godly wisdom, is worth wanting. That's good. That's beautiful. That it lights up the abundant and the blessed way of Jesus in the middle of so many factions and divisions. One of the consistent themes about wisdom in the Bible is that we have to search for it. We live within cultures which are disordered and disturbed by worldly wisdom. And so we have to seek godly wisdom. This is why the question about whether we want wisdom is so important. Because if we want it, we will seek it. And finding it, our hearts will be transformed, our lives changed, and God's harvest of righteousness and justice will advance through our lives. So how do we seek godly wisdom? Some of you are like, oh, that's going to be a whole other sermon. No, 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 no. It's actually really simple. It's really, really good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you want this godly wisdom, if you want to want this godly wisdom, seek the pure and peaceable Christ. Seek the gentle Jesus who took on to himself the vulnerabilities of your flesh. Seek the one who yielded to his father's will. Seek the Jesus who proclaimed mercy over judgment, who welcomed the women and men and children who'd been pushed aside by the disordering and chaotic hierarchies of their day. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the embodiment of godly wisdom. He is wisdom. Seek him and you will find wisdom. Grow deeper in him you will uncover new riches of wisdom. Abide in him and you will sow a harvest of righteousness. So Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, we come to you now. In you, we find the embodiment of true wisdom. First, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. 
as we come now to your table, show us again that all we need and all we want is found in you. Holy Spirit of the living God, give us stronger and more beautiful desires that we would want your wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Can we thank God together, church?